Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. I want to introduce you to Aaron Beckner. He is uh, an employee of the Replenish Foundation, which is going to be one of the organizations that our Advent offering this year goes to. So in case you don't know, every year at Area 10, we um, collect money for either a global project or a local project. It kind of oscillates between the two. And this year, we've decided to do three separate local projects. And so I would love for Aaron, he's been wonderful enough to be here with us this morning. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the organization Replenish and then generosity feeds and generosity packs, all all that works? Absolutely. So the Replenish Foundation started in 2011 with a goal of feeding children just up in Northern Virginia, where we started. And we found over the years that people called us and said, hey, can you come to our community uh, can you come do this? Can you come do that with us? And we sure, why not? And um, so what we do is, as a mission, is we simply feed kids, and we have two ways that we do that. Um, we have our large-scale meal creation events, and that's our Generosity Feeds initiative. So 150 to sometimes 700 people come together for two hours and create a beans and rice meal. Um, So you're scooping ingredients into a bag, heat sealing that bag, and they're all distributed through local backpack programs and food pantries. Our Generosity Packs initiative is instead of creating just one meal, you're actually putting a full pack together. So it's gonna have macaroni and cheese, a few cereals, some snacks, some milks or juices in it, and that's gonna provide a child uh, through a local backpack program uh, a full weekend of food. Uh, So again, what we do is is we work with partners like Area 10 uh, to find schools and food pantries that need support and bring the volunteers and the supplies together to make that happen and feed those kids. Awesome. Um, How does food insecurity affect kids, families, and communities? So food insecurity is an interesting thing in America. We all recognize hunger. Um, when, when I say hunger, you're probably thinking of a little malnourished child um, and someone saying, you know, for a cup of coffee a day, you can feed this starving child. Uh, in America, it looks very different um, because we have Walmarts, we have Targets. Um, these families can go and get things that look like everybody. Um, So when the child comes to school, uh, they look like every other kid. The reality is, though, um, food insecurity is going to cause um, developmental issues. They have increased sickness, so they're missing school more often. Um, They often shows up as social behavioral problems and um, just an inability to learn and thrive. Um, So you see these kids, you know, labeled problem children, when oftentimes they just need food. And when that that basic need can be taken care of, one, they get to just be a kid, which is really important. But two, they get to start learning and thriving and growing and changing, uh, which just creates a whole new path for them. Uh, Virginia, for instance, has had a 2% increase 
Um, we're at roughly 300,000 households um, that are considered food insecure. Um, Catherine Johnson Elementary School that's three miles away is, um, has 54% of their children are considered food insecure. Uh, that school actually, because of their numbers, it's easier just to give all the kids free breakfast and lunch than to deal with who's going to pay and who's not. Um, so, you know, there's, there's lots of numbers to talk about with that, but there's a very tangible impact to what happens when, when you feed a kid. Uh, one, of our, one of our team members that runs our large-scale events uh, was out and she met with a counselor and the counselor shared a story of one of the kids that had started receiving our meals. And she said, this little boy was ingenious. I, I love it. Um, he would sneak into his mom's bedroom at night and he had figured out how to tell if she was asleep or not. If he slipped his hand up under the covers and wiggled her big toe, I don't know why it had to be the big toe, but it did. If he wiggled her big toe and she didn't yell at him, it was good to sneak into the pantry, open up the peanut butter, and grab a spoonful. Now, he had also figured out that if he smoothed it back over just right, when his mom made his sandwich the next morning, she wouldn't know that he had done that and he wouldn't get in trouble. So, this kid had to use his brain to figure out how to sneak peanut butter. Imagine what he gets to do now because there's a backpack program in place to take care of him so that when he's in school, he's learning. And so that's what we're doing. We're taking care of kids like that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I know many of the people in the room have been participants in the Generosity Feeds program before we've done that multiple times here at Area 10. But the Generosity Packs is different because they get to take home the backpack and it just looks like they're like any other kid, right? Correct. So it's actually going to be just a, a paper lunch sack that's dropped into their back, backpack by a, a teacher at the end of the day um, on Fridays. So every kid's seen a brown paper bag in another kid's backpack. So it's really important that we make sure that there's no difference in what a kid sees. Um, because anytime you, you receive charity, part of the process is, is a loss of dignity. We never want that for a child or for the parents, because this is hard for the parents as well. Um, and, and so the more that we can help restore that dignity or keep it in place, um, the more we can create a better cycle for these families. That's really thoughtful. Um, so you have a captive audience here. Um, the doors are not locked. I'm obligated to tell you that. But um, what do you want to tell this group of people? So today is really important for me. Um, this is a chance for me to come home and share my story and, um, and how God's used my story to, to impact others. So right next to your building is an, a, an apartment building. Um, I would go to my dad's on the weekends, and while I was there, um, my church would come into my home and put, put food in the pantry. So growing up, I didn't know hunger. I didn't know that I was one of these kids. I found out when I helped found Replenish Foundation because I noticed that things I would, when I, when I talked to parents out there or counselors that were taking care of these kids, um, 
I noticed that things that they said matched up to things that my mother had shared with me about my childhood or things that I remembered. And so I got on the phone with my mom one time and I said, Mom, I don't, I don't care what the answer is. I just need to know. And I said, was I one of these kids growing up? And my mom paused and didn't say anything, which if you ever meet my mom, that's really, really weird. Um, and I had to ask her twice, and she said yes. And what I learned is, is that in 1986, my mom was told that she should never work again because of health issues. I never knew that. I knew a mom that worked two to three jobs. I can remember going to sleep and her going off to um, work at the Domino's Pizza Call Center when they had that here. Um, I can remember walking to the grocery store because we didn't have a car, but I never remember being hungry. And it's because people like you took part in things like your Advent giving and stepped in. And so I grew up and got to thrive as a kid. I got to play on the playground. I got to be a kid. I got to have fun. Um, I got to grow and learn. And so I found a love of feeding. I became a chef for a, for a long time and, and did that and then got into the Replenish Foundation and this is what I do now. And so God has used my story that I didn't even know to impact, you know, countless lives. We've done 4 million meals in 13 years. Um, over 15,000 pounds of food have gone out into communities through PACs. And so I just want you to know that you're making a very tangible impact. You are changing the trajectory of the life of a child when you join in this Advent giving and when you come out and participate in these programs. It makes a big difference. And um, one of the things that I love to get to share is a thank you from my mom when we do our big events because what I learned through this is I always focus on the child. Um, these parents have to put their kids to bed not knowing where they're going to get them breakfast. They come home from work not knowing if they're going to be able to feed them that night and how to take care of that. And the stress involved in that on top of everything else they're dealing with is so huge. Um, so a special thank you from my mom and moms like her and dads that are out there doing that, doing that and, and suffering through that uh, because you also get to feed a kid and, and give them that moment's relief, uh, which is a really big deal. Absolutely. Um, well, one of the things that I love in particular about this year's Advent offering is typically we'll, we'll raise money and then we might give you an update, you know, a month later, letting you know how that money was used. Um, but this year, there are tangible ways that uh, we can follow up with the money that was donated. Um, so I would love for you to tell us how Area 10 Faith Community can, can support and get involved beyond just a financial gift in December. Absolutely. So the great thing is, is that um, we have a goal for you to give with Advent, and, and so please make sure you're doing that because what's going to happen is, is each quarter over the, the next 12 months in 2024, we're going to have what we call the Generosity Packs creations, and that's where we're going to come here, not to the bird, to your building down the street, um, and we're going to put together roughly 260 packs a quarter. 
they're going to be given to the local school so that they can drop those in those kids' backpacks. So know that every dollar you give has a tangible impact right here in your backyard. Um, and you get to come and do that service throughout the year, which is a lot of fun. This is family friendly. Um, kids as young as three and up can participate. It's really easy for a kid to drop something in a bag. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Um, we have music playing and all of that. So uh, again, January 27th is going to be the first one. So there's a a quick turnaround for you seeing that. Um, then April 13th, and then two more uh, later on in the year. Yeah, all the more reason to sign up for the Area 10 newsletter because the links to sign up to do that will be in this week's newsletter. So um, we're going to have all of that information available online on our website and in the app. Um, but give us those dates one more time for those that didn't get their phones out fast enough. January 27th. And that'll be like 10 to... 10 to noon. It's a Saturday. And then April 13th from 10 to noon. And then we've got some August and something August, else dates. But if you worry. really like to plan ahead, it's <laughs> August 17th and November 2nd. We'll keep you up to date on that for sure. Definitely sign up for the <laughs> newsletter. They fill up fast for sure <laughs> yeah. when we do these. Okay, cool. Um, well, thank you again so much for being here. Uh, for those that want to donate, uh, if you want to write a check, you can uh, just write Advent in the memo line when you come up for offering later on. Or um, if you want to donate online, there is a drop-down menu that you can select Advent offering online. For anybody that gives to the Advent offering. I mentioned earlier, we've got these really adorable little ginger wooden gingerbread houses out in the lobby. We would love for you to take one of those as a, a thank you gift. I love this as like a little memento because we have at our house all these different ornaments that we've collected over the year that when we take the ornaments out and put them on the tree, we get to remember the different um, Advent offerings that we participated in in years past. So it's a really lovely tradition that goes beyond just, you know, the, the giving and receiving of the Christmas season. It, it really reminds you of, you know, that sacrificial love that God gave us. Um, so thank you again for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me out. I am going to invite Topher out onto the stage now so that he can um, talk to us a little bit about Jesus for the outcasts. I get to talk about Jesus. Woo! So, um, this is not my normal sultry voice. Uh, here's, here's the deal that we're going to make together today. If I pass out during the sermon, and someone films it, and it goes viral, I get half of whatever money that brings in. I feel like that is a fair deal. Um, I just... We'll see what happens. Uh, it is good, and I think we could all agree that it is good to give, to be generous. And that's one of the things I have really always appreciated about this church, is just how generous people are. And this season of Advent, um, as I w have witnessed over the last five years, uh, some of what Rachel was just saying, um, just people give above and beyond uh, to help our community or to help those around the world. And so... Just honestly, thank you so much for being such a generous people. I do think that there are um, lots of things in our lives that we actually agree on more than we disagree on. I know right now it seems like we disagree with a lot of different things in, in culture in our lives, but I think there's, there's quite a few things we do agree on. I think a lot of us think bacon is tasty, um, and those of you that don't, that's okay. 
I, I think most of us can agree that the cold side of the pillow is just, just chef's kiss, right? I think all of us can agree that there was plenty of room on that door for Jack and Rose, right? I think most of us can agree that political ads are, are kind of irritating. I think if you are, um, uh, if, if you have a television and children, we could agree that Bluey is just wonderful. Um, I think that, I think one of the things that we could all agree on, and I don't know why, is that for some reason, um, lowering the volume while driving helps you see better. Um, like, like that's the thing that happens, right? Like there's just a lot of things that, that we can agree on. One of the joys of my job is getting to interact and connect with people and kind of hear their stories. And one of the things that's pretty common and, and, and pretty uh, often cited in their stories and in their, in their lives is just how rough the preteen and middle school years were. Like, I don't know anyone that's like, man, middle school was the best for me. Like, I just don't know anyone like that. Most people I know, most adults that I talk with as they share their stories, it's very much a, I look back at that time and I see, like, pain or embarrassment or frustration or fear. For a lot of us, that's where we really felt like an outcast for the first time in our lives. It's the first time that we could really remember um, like just being on the outside looking in, not included or, or just judgment kind of heaped upon us and not even understanding really why. I had the fun privilege of starting my seventh grade year at a brand new middle school and a month in to when the middle school had already started. So I was the chubby new kid. I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> I can still remember going for lunch and going to the cafeteria and getting a bagel dog, which it's a hot dog wrapped in like bagel dough, and a cactus cooler, which is a soda they have out in, in Southern California. And I would, oh, someone knows a cactus cooler. You're my people. And I would go, I would literally just go outside and be by myself because I didn't know how to make friends. I didn't know, I didn't know what that looked like. Like I, I was the chubby new kid and, it, and for whatever reason, I very much felt like I did not belong, that I didn't belong with any group, I didn't belong with, with, uh, with any direction of, of what I wanted to learn or what I should be knowing. And then, to make matters worse, in my English class, um, our first kind of, I guess, two or three months of English class, we would spend a portion of the class reading out loud. And I've always been a good reader. I love to read. I, I read well. Um, but we read the story where the red fern grows, and I don't know if you've read it, but there's two dogs in it, and spoiler alert, they die. So now I'm the chubby kid who cries out loud in the middle of a seventh grade English class because dogs die. And you know, things really haven't changed that much for me. Like, I, I don't watch Marley and me. Don't read A Dog's Purpose. If there is dog in the title, just avoid it. It's never going to be... It's never going to be good. Most of us just have those moments, though, when we think about our lives where we have felt like we were on the outside looking in, that we weren't always the ones that were included. And sometimes people are outcasts and how we view outcasts because culture or society or a group has deemed them so because they don't fit the expected or accepted expectations or appearances or beliefs or status. And sometimes people are outcasts really because of their own actions and demeanor. You know, like you could only hurt and cheat and steal so much before people don't want to be around you, right? Here's what I want you to know. God was born 
for the outcasts. Last week we talked about how God was born for the good, the, the, the chosen nation of Israel, the people of Israel. But I want you to understand that God, that Jesus was born for the outcast. When you look at the Gospels and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Christ's life, that truth is just abundantly clear. The book of Luke, which is one of my favorites, and the book of Acts, which is the second book that, that the apostle, the disciple Luke wrote, one can argue that they're just giant love letters to the outcast. In Luke 4.18, Jesus, as he kicks off his ministry, quotes the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, freedom, that word literally means released. And it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in the book of Leviticus. If you've been a part of one of our formation groups this year, this is something that you probably have some kind of recollection for. It was a time when all Israelite slaves were released, debts were canceled, land, was, land that was sold was given back to families. And this good news is, is of release is for the poor. Now, we've talked here on Sunday mornings and in our small groups that that word poor is speaking much more broadly than simply someone who, who doesn't have a lot of money or resources. It refers to those with low social status, social outsiders, uh, people whose poor life choices have, have placed them on the margins of society. Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, is saying the kingdom of God is especially good news for the outcasts as he brings belonging restoration, and reconciliation. As we go through the book of Luke, just, just in Luke chapter 5, we read the story of, of a leper, a paralytic, and Levi, a tax collector. Levi, the tax collector, we come to find out is Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. And all three of these individuals were outcasts. They were marginalized in society, either because of their illness, because of their status, or because of the job that they had. But no one wanted anything to do with them. And yet Jesus met them exactly where they were and treated them like family and showed them love and compassion. In Luke 7, we read the story of a woman, more than likely a prostitute, who is weeping at Jesus' feet as they are in, in a Pharisee's house, a religious elite person's house. And the religious elite are, are looking at what's going on, just confused and, and almost flustered at what is occurring. And Jesus is meeting this woman exactly where she, she is at and, and pushing back on the Pharisee, saying, no, you're missing the point. What she is doing is what's correct. In Luke 10, we read about the Good Samaritan. A pretty well-known story, even if you didn't grow up in church. The story is a guy is traveling on the road. He gets jumped. He gets beat up, left for dead. And as he's on the side of the road, left for dead, different people walk by and don't offer any help until finally a Samaritan comes. And, and the, thing, the reason Jesus was telling this story is that Samaritans, by and large, were known as outcasts. The Jewish people hated Samaritans. But it was the outcast who was the hero of the story. It was the outcast who stopped and helped this person, who got him on his way, took him into town, and paid for his recovery. In Luke 17, we read about ten, leopards and, uh, ten lepers. In Luke 18, we read about a blind, blind beggar. In Luke 19, we read about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, a wee little man, was he. A lying, cheating, greeting extortionist who was hated by the people, but he found a place with Jesus. And Jesus treated him like family. And yet he was a known swindling tax collector. Heck, the first people that, that God reveals the birth of Jesus to are outcasts, 
Luke chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. I wish I could sound like Linus right now. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Here's the thing about shepherds. They were considered unclean. If you would have had shepherds in your home, if you had invited them to your home, that meant that your home and you would have been unclean. The irony of this is, is that they were good enough to care for the sheep who would be used in the sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. But they weren't good enough to actually join them in worship. The ones who would never be invited to anything are the ones who receive a royal announcement to the outcast. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, we see that he didn't just come for the chosen, but he came for the people in the margins. Now, maybe your life is great. Maybe your life has always been great. Maybe, maybe you've never been made to feel less than, unworthy, unwanted, or unwelcome. Maybe your mistakes and decisions haven't ever cut you off from the world around you. Maybe you don't know what it's like to be an outcast, but my guess is most of us in here, many of us watching at home or on our TVs, we really do. We know very well what it's like to be different, whether because of the things that we like or enjoy, or because of the way that we were brought up, or the things that we put our faith in. We know what it's like to carry the shame of our decisions and mistakes. We know what it's like to not be welcomed. We know what it's like to be blamed for things because we're the easiest scapegoat. We know what it's like to feel as if nothing we ever do will be enough. Many of us know what it feels like to be dismissed because of our age, political leanings, color of skin, Sex, education level, neighborhood in which you grew up in, body type, illness, or limitations. The good news of great joy that Christmas is all about is that God came near to you, the poor, the imprisoned, the marginalized, the outcasts. If you have your Bible or a Bible app, I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 4. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. We're going to walk through um, a short bit of text. And, and this, this text is, is really following Jesus on a journey from Judea, where Jerusalem is, up to Galilee with his disciples. And he stops over at a well um, in the land of Samaria. Now, at that time, in the eyes of many Jewish people, like I had mentioned earlier, Samaria and its people, the Samaritans, were to be avoided. They were considered tainted because they married non-Jewish people after an Assyrian invasion that happened century, centuries earlier. They didn't follow the correct, correct traditions. 
They built their own temple, not in Jerusalem, which led to them truly being hated. They were so hated, in fact, that most people wouldn't even bother traveling through Samaria. They would add several days to their journey crossing the River Jordan so that they wouldn't even have to go through uh, Samaria. So deep was the belief that they were unclean, that whatever a Samaritan touched was also considered unclean and should be burnt. Jesus wouldn't even, or, <coughs> excuse me, um, any, people wouldn't even sit where uh, Samaritans would have sat. They were to be avoided at all costs. Jesus didn't really need to go through Samaria. He chose to, and he sat down at a well, and this is the story that we get, starting in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She's shocked because she knows what Jews think of Samaritans. She also knows that culturally at this point in time, that unless uh, the opposite sex is your spouse, you're not supposed to be having any interaction with them. And yet here Jesus is asking for a drink of water. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? So Samaritans and Jews, their, their history and their lineage is the same. Again, if you're in our formation groups, you've, you've heard the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She is speaking of that Jacob. They have a shared lineage. And this is the well of Jacob. This is something that we can read about multiple times in the Old Testament. This is where they're sitting. And she's, and she's, she's prodding Jesus, not in, a, not in a negative way, not in a disrespectful way, but just trying to seek to understand. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And then Jesus, he, he, Jesus is, he says to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have is now is not your husband. This you have said truly. I think of everything in a movie setting, and this is one of those where I'm sure it's not meant to be comical, but in my brain, like, this interaction ends with silence and crickets in the background. Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, yes, you're right, you don't have a husband. Uh. Great. So, you're a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. One of the things I want us to understand, or one of the things I want us to note here, is that so often we will read this or we will hear a sermon on this, and people will say, like, oh, Jesus is calling out her sin. The word sin, the implication of sin, is, is really nowhere in this. Jesus is merely stating facts. He is merely stating uh, the facts of her life as he knows them to prove who he is. And the thing that oftentimes people forget is, is she, she, this woman, the Samaritan woman, often gets 
almost like a bad rap because we don't know why she had multiple husbands. We don't know if they died. We don't know if uh, her previous husbands cheated on her or she cheated on them. We have no idea why. But back in that time, a woman was not the one that would have been allowed to proceed for a divorce. It would have only been a man. It would have only been her husband that could have filed for divorce. So here is a woman who was already feeling like an outcast talking to a Jewish man, but who's had a life of other people saying, I don't want to be with you. You're not enough for me. The beautiful and heartbreaking thing about the Samaritan woman at the well is that this, this is the person that Jesus Jesus tells for the very first time that he's the Messiah to an outcast, to a social, moral, racial outcast. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This woman's life has made her shunned even in her own community. And yet this is the very first person that Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. We read in Scripture, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And sometimes I think we lose that, that beauty of that message. Because in this moment, Jesus is holding space, not in some condemning way, but in a manner that meets her where she is at as he makes clear to her the same things that he makes clear to us today. Nothing will satisfy your thirst for life like God's salvation and grace. I, I believe wholeheartedly that in the heart and mind of everyone who, who has ever felt like an outcast is a deep, deep desire to be loved and known. And it's not one or the other, it, it's both. Because we know the feelings of rejection when you're known, but you're not loved. When people can point to your mistakes or the things that you're good at, or the things that you're bad at, and you're not enough. We also know how hollow it feels to be loved, but not really known. Where we just put up the walls in the front of how people should see us, so that then we can receive their affection. We understand this on a deep level. We'll change our identity from day to day to fit in with different groups of people, because we want to be known, we want to be loved, and we'll chase after everything We'll chase after power and money and sex and status and comfort. But nothing ever satisfies because those things aren't made to satisfy. We have this gift, this gift that is so freely offered. And so often our pride keeps us from accepting that gift because we have these, these barriers these barriers that just exist within us that help convince us that either we aren't good enough and Jesus couldn't possibly care about us or that God isn't good enough. And so why care about Jesus at all? 
It's a push and pull that I think most of us experience, even if we're not always able to identify it. And we're intimately acquainted with these barriers because they're made up of our experiences, our childhoods, our limitations, our privileges, how people have treated us in the past, how people treat us now, where we've grown up, the cultural zeitgeist that permeates all aspects of our daily lives. These aspects of our existence constantly are communicating that we are either too broken and sinful for Jesus or we're too good for Jesus. And look, when you have a mindset, whether you realize you have it or not, that you're too good for Jesus, odds are you're quick to criticize others. You have an overinflated sense of self and self-righteousness. You believe that your truth matters most, and those that disagree with you are your enemy, and you'll function primarily out of a place of judgment, self-preservation, and self-reliance. And when you have a mindset, whether you realize you have this mindset or not, that believes you're too broken and sinful for Jesus, you're just as quick to criticize others. But you're also real quick to criticize yourself. You believe somehow that you're irredeemable. You're untrusting towards others because they're just going to let you down like the last ones. And you too will often function from a place of judgment, self-protection, and self-reliance. And both mindsets stem from the same place. Pain and pride. Our pain, our pain teaches us to protect ourselves, to look out for ourselves first, which endlessly feeds our pride. While our pride keeps us from acknowledging our own weaknesses and mistakes, which inevitably leads to more pain. But the birth of Christ that we celebrate during Christmas, the life of Christ, his death on our behalf, his victory over death, it flips the script because instead of a pursuit of of things that will never truly satisfy, we are invited to live our lives in relationship with him, fully known and fully loved, no longer outcasts ruled by pain and pride, but sons and daughters of the king led by hope and humility. I think Brendan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, sums it up well. He said, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need, who know they don't have it all together, and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. It is for poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It is for the bent and the bruised, who feel that their lives are a grace disappointment to God. It is for anyone who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. I don't know where you are mentally, spiritually, or emotionally this Christmas season. I don't know if you're thriving or barely surviving. This Christmas, whether you're surrounded by family and friends or quietly celebrating alone, may the King of Kings who first announced, who was first announced to the outcast shepherds, meet you where you are. May the Lord of Lords, who first revealed himself to an outcast woman in Samaria, make himself known to you. And may you sit in his glory, fully known and fully loved by him, remembering that he was born for you. The band is going to come out, and, and we're just going to sing a few songs. Um, we're not going to take communion yet. I know that's our normal kind of uh, time, but I just want to encourage you in these 
moments of, of worship and, and song and prayer. You would just do some reflection. In those moments where you have felt like an outcast or maybe you, you feel like you're an outcast right now, just put that at his feet. Because he was born for you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the birth of your son. For being for the outcasts. Lord, knowing that we can be fully known and loved because of you. Lord, I pray in this time of worship, as we sing songs, as we pray, as we reflect on who you are, God, that you will meet us in this space, that you will break down barriers and boundaries, that you will make things clear, that you bring hope. God, this season is about you. Help us to be generous of spirit. Help us to be generous with our time. And through it all, may our eyes be focused on you. It's your only name we pray. Amen.